All right. Our letter for today is the letter to the church in Philadelphia. Uh, we find it in Revelation chapter 3. Every time I say Revelation, I want to say Revelations just to upset David. <laughs> and I started doing a young adult group just to be funny, and now it's like hard to stop saying Revelations. So be careful. It's Revelation, just one. All right. Now, throughout this series, right, we've held that these letters are written to actual historical churches that existed in Asia Minor, but they're also shared with us in our Bible. They're here for us to read today. Jesus ends each letter, right, by saying, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This command tells us that we are, we are right to study them and to seek to understand them so we might learn from Jesus what he expects from us as his church. And I'd remind us that even when they were sent out, all these letters would have been read by all the churches in Asia Minor and soon after spread throughout the world. Now, let's think about this for a second. Some churches maybe would have been more proud to have their letters shared, right? Some churches didn't need as much correction as other churches. I mean, we know what it's like to receive a report card, right? And that's really what a lot of these letters are, is a report card. But just imagine if everyone's grades were kind of in your class, were just put together on one sheet and handed out and sent home with everybody. Let's just say some people, right? The good students, <laughs> the A-plus students, maybe would have been more, more comfortable with it than others. I think Philadelphia would have been one of, those, one of those churches, right? Maybe Laodicea, Thyatira, Sardis, maybe not so proud, right, of their letter. I remember Pastor Brent, when we did our, our table talk introduction to this series, he kind of did an impression of Philadelphia receiving their letter, their kind of glowing report from the Lord and sitting up straight and just being like, oh, yeah, good, good. Hey, what'd you guys get? Like, Philadelphia does, does well. So it's, it makes it an interesting letter because there's not, they don't have the correction that many of the other churches receive from their Lord. They receive a glowing report. This letter's been a joy for me to study because every detail, every little thing that Jesus says has so much behind it, and we have a limited time today, um, but I hope that this time in God's Word stirs up in you a desire to return to this letter and the other letters and, and study it further. We're going to be met with a church that kept Christ's Word and refused to deny His name, even though they were of little strength. And I pray that their steadfastness encourages you today in your walk with the Lord. And collectively as a church encourages us today to hold fast to Christ's word. So let's, let's read the letter. It's Revelation chapter 3, uh, verses 7 to 14. I'm coming out of the NIV. Uh, let's see here. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I place before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. 
I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now this letter includes the same three sections we find in all of Jesus' letters here in Revelation, right? It begins with the greeting or the qualifications of the sender, Jesus. Then we read the body of the letter, which is really the report card section, we're calling it. And lastly, the promises to the one who is victorious. And so the letter begins with the inscription to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, Now, this is kind of an interesting statement, and historically, there's been a lot of discussion, a lot of debate over whether these angels were angelic beings or human messengers. And this is actually one of those times where our first impression, just reading through the text, may not be the best one. Now, the Greek word for angel, angelos, means messenger, literally, usually a messenger of God often an angel, but not always. Now, this is kind of an interesting rabbit hole to go down, and part of me wants to, but I'll just say that I lean lean towards angels being human messengers because of what we know about how these letters were distributed, right? This would have been written down and shared and sent to not only this church, but all seven churches, and not only them, but eventually distributed, and, and we've received it as well in the written form we physically receive this letter. Jesus continues his introduction by saying this. He says, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. So Jesus identifies himself as the one who is holy and true. I want you to remember that that statement, holy and true. We're going to come back to it later towards the end. He is also identified as one who holds the key of David. And it's said that what he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. Now, what is a key, right? Kind of a simple question. We all know what a key is. Simply put, a key is a tool or something used to open something, usually a door. It can open it, it can shut it. But a key is more than that, right? It represents authority, represents responsibility. You wouldn't just give your house key to anyone, would you? I can remember as a child, right, my parents going out on date night, and they would leave us with a babysitter. And before they left, they would give the house key to the babysitter. 
And I remember as a child just kind of looking up and being like, oh, there's like, that's it. That's the key. Like it has the power. I've seen people open this front door with this and I kind of want to escape sometimes. Like, give me the key. And of course they didn't. They gave it to the babysitter. But I would like follow around the babysitter just being like, can I have the key now? Can I have the key? You know, can I just hold the key? I wanted to grab that, that power, that authority, and go to my brother and sister and just like shove it in their face and be like, I have the power. I'm in charge now. Not like punch them in the face, but like just hold the key and be like, I'm in charge now. Everybody back down. I was like Gollum wanting to touch the one ring, okay? Maybe that's an overstatement. I don't know. There's a reason you don't give the one ring to Gollum if you've read Lord of the Rings or seen the movies. And there's a reason I wasn't given the one key. And it's pretty obvious. I couldn't be trusted. I'm going to have to change that uh, story when I preach in 3R next week because we're actually house-sitting for, like, the Campbells. And they're going to be like, you can't be trusted with the house key? But... Uh, I'll make a different one. All right. But Jesus can be trusted, right? Right? He is, in fact, the only one up to the task. That's why he gets the key of David. But what is the key of David? Interestingly, there's only one other place in the Bible that uses this phrase, the key of David. And it's in Isaiah 22. Um, you don't have to turn there. I'm going to kind of try to summarize it for us quick. In Isaiah 22, we find the story of Eliakim, which is a cool name. But he was to be the palace administrator for the house of the king, right? He was going to be given the key to the house of David. So he would have authority over the resources of the kingdom, right? He would decide what resources went where and what came in. And even more than that, he controlled access to the king. Who could come in to the palace and see the king? It was a position of great authority. And in Isaiah 22, God is speaking judgment on the man who had this job before Eliakim, and he says this, he says, In that day I will summon my servant Eliakim, and I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. Now in Revelation, we find Jesus describing himself as the one who holds the key of David. God has entrusted Jesus with the key to the kingdom. This means that Jesus has ultimate authority, not only of the resources of his kingdom, but also who's coming in and who isn't. Now this truth about their Lord is going to have a special meaning and a special impact on this congregation in Philadelphia. So let's continue this letter. The next section, we kind of move into what we call the report card section. So how are they doing? What does their Savior think about their work? Let's read it. In verse 8, it says, I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Now to fully appreciate Jesus' word to this church, we need some historical understanding about the earliest churches and their relationship 
with the Jewish synagogues, right? What is a synagogue? In the Greek, it translates literally as just a gathering place, right? It was a, it was a community center where the Jewish people would come together and worship God. They would study the Torah. They would have social gatherings and celebrations. For many Jews in the first century AD, the synagogue was a major part of their life, right? You can imagine in in a Roman-occupied empire, this was a, a safe space, for lack of a better term, for the Jews to gather. To be Jewish was to be part of the local synagogue. It was the center of their community. Now, when Jesus came, who did he come to? The Bible tells us he came to the lost sheep of Israel. He came as a Jew to the Jews. Each of the four Gospels tell us that Jesus spent a lot of time teaching in the synagogues as he traveled around Galilee and Capernaum. In John 18, there's a scene where Jesus is arrested and he's being questioned by the high priest. And the high priest is asking him about his teaching, about the things that he was saying. Let's listen to how he responds to that. He says, Jesus says, I've spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret, so why do you question me? Ask those who heard me, surely they know what I have said. And even after Jesus died, rose again, and ascended into heaven, we see the disciples continuing to be part of their local synagogues. They continue to go there to testify to everything Jesus had done for his people. Even in the book of Acts, right, we read about Paul as he would go town to town. What would he do? Often he had this pattern of going first to the synagogues, to the Jews, proclaiming the gospel, and then to the public square, to the marketplace, and to the Greeks. Why go first to the synagogues? He would go first to the synagogues because the Jewish people were waiting for a Messiah. And the earliest Christian's message was that the Messiah had come and his name is Jesus. Christ came first to them and his disciples did too. In fact, most of the earliest Christians were converts from Judaism, both people that were ethnically Jewish and Greek speaking God-fearers who had come into Judaism first and then became Christians. But over time, right, this changes, and we kind of see this in the letter today. Over time, as you read through the New Testament, you begin to get the sense of this inevitable split between Christians and the synagogues. Now, I said it was inevitable. Why? Well, the split is inevitable because of what Christ commends this church for in his letter. You see, though they had little strength, Jesus says, and it's interesting to kind of compare that with the descriptions of the other churches in the other letters. You remember last week, Sardis was described as being a reputation of being alive, right? They looked impressive on the outside. Whereas the church in Philadelphia here does not. They're not very remarkable on the outside, and yet they're holding to the truth on the inside. 
Yet these earliest Christians, because they had kept Christ's word, right, their insistence on Christ crucified as the only way to God, and their refusal to deny Christ or give that up, it made them unwelcome. And tremendous pressure was put on them to return to Judaism or get out. They held on to the one thing that made them distinct, right? They held on to the gospel. They knew that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, was their greatest treasure. And it was worth losing everything else to hold on to. The truth of a God who loved the world so much that he sent his only son to die for our sins so that we could have life eternal with him, they weren't going to give that up. Where many of the churches in the cities around them needed correction, right? They had compromised. They had not. Many of the letters we've read in this series to the seven churches required a lot of correction. But Philadelphia isn't one of them. They had kept the word of Christ and not denied his name. This church was met with intense opposition by those who claim to be Jews but are not and are actually liars. So these Jews were imposters, right? They were claiming something that they were not. I can remember as a young teenager in the 90s, right, when I was growing up in Southern California, we had to deal with imposters as well. But we called them posers, okay? I, when I was growing up, I was a skater, or you could say skateboarder if you like weren't as cool as I was. I was pretty cool. And as skate culture kind of began to permeate mainstream culture, right, you'd see people wearing the skate clothes, skate shoes are very popular, even people carrying around boards who couldn't skate. And it was our job to call them out. So sometimes we'd be at the mall and we'd see someone like with skate clothes or skateboard and we'd just be like, poser! Like we'd scream across the mall trying to call them out as posers and they'd have to like do a trick. Like this is, I'm not making this up. Like they'd drop their board and like do an ollie or a grind or whatever it was. They'd have to prove it. I used to have to prove it too. Like it was tough in the streets. <laughs> All right. And uh, no one wants to be called a poser, okay? It's the only thing worse than being a rollerblader. So <laughs> Jesus is, Marcy wants to get rollerblades, but I'm like, no, just because of how I was raised. Like, that's not okay. Sorry to the rollerbladers. All right. Jesus is calling these unbelieving Jews out as posers, right? They're, they're pretending to be the child of God, and yet they refuse God's own son, and they go a step further than that, or even, even persecuting God's true children. But Jesus warned his followers about this while he was still with them, right? In John 16, Jesus warns them specifically about the coming friction, or that's even putting it softly, the coming violence between his followers and the Jews. He says this, he says, they will put you out of the synagogue in fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this, that when the time comes, you will remember 
that I warned you about them. Now in our text today, these warnings are no longer future, right? They're present. Jesus goes so far as to call them the synagogue of Satan. We see them persecuting the church in the same way that they persecuted Christ. Now we talked about the deep cultural importance of the synagogue to first century Jewish Christians, but just imagine how painful it would be to be cast out from that group and even met with violence. Not only are you losing a large part of your community, but you would be told that you are actually being pushed out from the people of God, the nation of Israel. It would have been like losing your your social, your cultural, and even your spiritual identity all in one. Early Christians lost their place in the synagogues as it became more and more apparent that they weren't going to deny Christ and the Jews weren't going to be persuaded that Christ was their only hope, that he was the Messiah that God had given them. Christians were cast out and the door was shut behind them. Their holding fast to Christ's word and refusal to deny his name made them unwelcome and even put their very lives at stake. Now, what would it be like to be shut out of your community or your family because you follow Christ? Now, how many of you guys have heard of the organization The Voice of the Martyrs? You ever heard of that? They put out a monthly magazine telling the stories of Christians throughout the world, often throughout the world, often stories of persecution and faith, of people standing up for God when it's difficult. And a few weeks ago, I was reading the January issue, which sometimes I have to force myself to do because the stories can be pretty tough to read. Like, they're difficult. And I was reading this, and I I came across a story about a man named Bassam who lives in the Arabian Peninsula, and they wouldn't say exactly where he lived for his safety. Um, But it tells the story of Bassam, who came to faith in Christ years before, but like many of the, many of the, peop- many of the Christians in this area, he kind of kept it to himself. Because the, the culture and the government and everything um, all followed Islam, right? More than just, um, it was, it's totally baked through their culture. Like Islam is important, not just religiously, but also culturally. To, to abandon Islam is like to betray your country, your family, everything. And so he was quiet, but over time as he continued to read the Gospels and he continued to read the story of God who loved him so much that he sent his only son to die for him so that he could have new life, he began to be compelled to speak out, knowing that it could cost him dearly. And it did. First he started talking to his family about his faith in Christ. And they did not want to hear. Even his, his own wife rejected him and began to push him out and keep him from his daughters. And she even went so far as to call his work and tell them that he had become a Christian and all, he was a Jesus freak. And created a lot of problems for him there. And even, even had her brothers beat him up repeatedly. The article said it was just a daily thing for him to be picked up and beaten by his brother-in-laws. And they went 
to the police and even had him arrested. And in court, the judge, trying to give him a way out, said, you can believe in Jesus. Like, Muslims believe in Jesus too, that he was a prophet. And he, he refused that. He said, no, I'm talking about the Jesus who is God who became man. And over time, he had many opportunities to show his faith, to forgive those who continued to persecute him. And his own sister began to ask questions. She noticed his faith and his refusal to deny Christ, even in the face of adversity, and eventually asked him for a Bible and asked him to tell her about who this Jesus was. And several, several people in his family have come to know Christ which is awesome, but he continues to, to be under that pressure to deny Christ, but he won't. Even though he had little strength, he kept Christ's word and refused to deny his name. Now the truth is, we don't have to look into history or even across the globe to find stories of people being ridiculed or put out because of their faith in Christ, right? There are people in this congregation who have experienced their, their families or their friends closing a door in their fa face because of their faith in Christ. So what does Christ have to say to those who've had a door shut in their faith? Fa face. Wow, that's a hard one. Face. Let's continue to read. He says, See, I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. What an encouragement this would have been to this church. What an encouragement this is to someone like Bassam who's experiencing rejection and persecution every day. And what an encouragement it is to anyone who has or will experience the same rejection that Christ experienced. I pray that should that day come for you or for me, that we would hold fast to what we have in Christ. In Christ, we find an open door. Now, what is this door, right? This door leads to salvation. This door leads into the kingdom. This door leads to our Father, God. What a promise for this church in Philadelphia. And yet, Jesus is just getting started with the promises and the blessings for those who have held fast and kept his word. Speaking again of the unbelieving Jews that claim to be God's people, but actually were persecuting the ones whom God loved. Jesus says this, he says, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Now, what makes this promise so shocking is that it was indeed first made to God's people, Israel. In Isaiah 60 and other places in Isaiah as well, God looked forward to the restoring of his people and said this, the children of your oppressors will come bowing down before you. All who despise you will bow down at your feet and, and will call you the city of the Lord, Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Now in this verse and other verses like it, we see the Gentiles coming and bowing down before the restored people of God and acknowledging that God is with them. And yet in this letter that Jesus writes to the church, in Philadelphia, he turns it around. Did you catch that? He promises that it's actually the unbelieving Jews who will come and bow down before God's true people, Christ's true church, and they will acknowledge them as Christ's true children. 
Those who claim to be holy and true will be set straight by the one who is holy and true. What a reassuring promise to the church, right? That though they're under pressure right now, though that they're being persecuted and pushed out, someday that will change. Now I say someday, but when will this occur? And I'll be honest with you, even even after studying this, I'm not sure. Some of the things detailed in Revelation happen to the people it's written to, and some of the things happen in the future. This is kind of one of those ones for me where it was, it was difficult to see. Perhaps this points forward to a day when every knee will bow and confess Christ as Lord. Or perhaps there was a, a sooner special fulfillment for this church. Jesus continues in verse 10. He says, since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. Now this verse is an interesting one, and much has been made of it. Some people see in this verse a possible rapturing of the church. I would say it is, it is difficult to build that doctrine here, and I have a few reasons. Here are some things we do know about this letter. This letter was written to an actual and addressed to an actual congregation that existed, as we've said before, and we know that this promise would have had special meaning to them. It is difficult to draw a larger meaning here for the rest of Christianity or for us. One of the reasons is because this promise isn't addressed to the one who is victorious, the next section we're going to go to pretty soon. But instead, it appears to be a specific promise made to this church in Philadelphia for keeping Christ's word and his command to endure patiently. Not every church who received a letter from Jesus is promised this. (laughs) Perhaps this is a reference to the persecution brought on by the Roman Emperor Domitian in their time. It's difficult to know. So I'm going to take the safe route and leave it at that. But I'd encourage you to study this on your own if you're interested or or talk to to David. He's the expert on Revelation. I always tell people that. He's like, stop sending people to me. Um, Anyway... (laughs) All right, in verse 11, Jesus says, I am coming soon, hold on to what you have, so that no one will take your crown. So when Jesus' mission on earth is complete, God will send him to gather his church. Though they appear to be losing in this world, and in some ways they are, Jesus writes them to hold on to what is theirs, a crown. What a striking contrast This means that in Christ they are victorious already. So they are encouraged to endure now and hold on to their reward. In Christ we are enduring now knowing that we will receive our reward later. Through faith in Christ and our refusal and refusal to deny him. Let me try that again. Though our faith in Christ and refusal to deny him will cost us in this life, we look forward to an eternity with him. Not a reward we earn, of course, but one that we are given. We're able to endure because Christ is with us. But what does this reward look like for those who are in Christ? Jesus answers this in verse 12. 
He says, to the one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. Now, one of the things we know about the city of Philadelphia is that they were famous for having massive earthquakes. There would be such horrible earthquakes that the whole town would be destroyed and the only thing left would be the pillars of the buildings. In AD 17, there was one of these earthquakes and the whole town was destroyed. The whole empire heard about it and the people that were able to get out of the town moved outside and stayed in a camp waiting for the city to be rebuilt. And even years and years later, Many of the people just never wanted to go back in. Their memory of the earthquake was so horrible, they never wanted to go back into the city and live there. Now, in our letter, those of little strength, right, are being promised that they will be made pillars in the temple of God. What a contrast. They will enter the temple of God and they will never leave it. No one will ever shut them out but they will be welcomed by their creator who loves them. There was also a practice of inscribing pillars with the names of important people as a way to honor them. And this is likely the sense of Jesus' next uh, promise to them. He says, I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name, Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, what do you write your name on, right? We've all had stuff growing up or whatever. It's like your binder, you write your name on, you know, your CDs or whatever, your records, you write your name on. Like, you write your name on things that belong to you, right? For these Christians who were pushed out of the synagogues and had lost their identity, this would have been a huge promise to them. Christ assures them not only of an open door into his kingdom, but a new identity in him. This reminds us of Jesus' word he spoke to his disciples, where he said, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now let's picture this. Those who believe in Jesus, who keep his word and confess him as Lord, will one day walk through that door into heaven. When we do, he will write on us the name of God and the name of the city of God, the new Jerusalem. And he will also write his name on us. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, is going to write his name on you, claiming you for all eternity. We who have no home in this world will find our eternal home in him. Now this coming reality gives us faith to stand for him now, right? And this promise, of course, isn't just for the church in Philadelphia. It's for the one who overcomes, who holds on to Christ. Those who have ears today, let them hear. So what can we learn from these early Christians? There's two things I'd like for us to take away from this letter today. The first takeaway is a challenge, something to consider. The truth that I was met with this week as I prepared this message is that we live in an abnormal time for Christians. 
We have lived in days where following Christ and being counted with him has cost many of us little. It's been easy for me. I honestly can't relate to what these early Christians or what many Christians across the globe, like Bassam, go through every day. Maybe that's why I find their faith so inspiring, because at times I feel so untested. But what if this changed for us tomorrow? What if following Christ meant you lost your job? What if keeping Christ's word meant that you lost your relationship with your family? What if not denying the name of Christ would cost you even your life? How would you respond? I invite you to consider today, what does it look like for me to keep Christ's word? In big ways and even in small ways. Over the course of our lives and every day, what does it look like for me not to deny his name? Now, even asking these questions, like I begin to kind of feel a little crushed, even a little guilty sometimes. Now that I've probably made you aware of your own weakness, I would remind you that it is a church of little strength that Christ commends in his letter. It's the church that relied on him and kept his word. So my, did I say this is my second takeaway? People like to count. This is my second one. All right. Remember that Christ said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you and my power is made perfect in your weakness. And what did Paul say to that? He said, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So when you feel weak, remember that Christ is with you. He identifies himself in the beginning of our letter as the one who is holy and true. What's so incredible about this description of Christ is that not only is he holy and true, but if you place your faith and trust in him, he has become for you holiness and truth. This is something we desperately need. The scriptures tell us that it is because of God that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. All this so that you might have a door opened in front of you that no one can shut and a place in his kingdom without end. Hold on to Christ. The day will come when Christ will welcome you through that door into his eternal kingdom and write on you his name. And everyone will know that he loves you. I mean, that's good news. <laughs> Amen? All right, let's, let's pray. Lord God, no matter what doors we find shut in our faces on earth, no matter 
what our faith in your son costs us. We thank you that before us in him stands an open door to his eternal kingdom where we're given a new name and a new identity. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.